Uh, hello and welcome to Congress Two Beers In, your podcast for all things policy, process, and politics uh, surrounding the United States Congress. My name is Matt Glassman. I'm here with Josh Huter and Mark Harkins. And uh, we are now Congress Two Beers In as we have just opened our second Two-Hearted Ale. It's an American IPA from Bell's Brewery, Comstock, Michigan. Michigan, uh, home of one Tim Alberta, who wrote <laughs> a right. wonderful piece this week, a long-awaited piece. It's really uh, incredible. If you haven't seen it, you should go look up Politico. Yeah, former Speaker Boehner. Uh, Tim is from Michigan, and I'm sure he'd be happy we're drinking Two-Hearted Ale. Our first topic this week on the podcast is congressional power. Uh, Mark, you were on a what I could describe as a mild rant earlier today. Why don't you get us started? So, wake up this morning, and my wife tells me about this great piece that Ezra Klein has written about how Congress has ceded its power to the executive branch by not attacking Trump enough, especially with the uh, indictments coming down yesterday. And, and I was a little annoyed by that because I'm a congressional apologist, I admit it. Um, but I'm sitting back thinking, well, hang on a second. This is a majority Republican party with their president of their own party. They've got at least four investigations going on on whether Russia had anything to do with the election. They've got at least two different uh, inquiries going on about the travel of the different secretaries and how they're doing their flights. You've got the president saying, oh, we should only, we won't answer requests from uh, Democrats for information. And you've got a Republican, Chuck Grassley, saying the pox on that, you need to answer all congressional inquiries, regardless of whether Republicans or Democrats equally. And, and those are the type of things where I think Congress is flexing its muscles somewhat, maybe not as quickly as some people would like to see, especially those who are Trump haters to begin with. But it is not by any means ceded its power, I don't think. I think the problem is like everybody wants to see like action, right? They want to see Congress do something. They're like, oh, well, like you bet you're not standing up and saying something against him. And then when somebody stands up and says something against him, it's like, well, you're not doing anything on your voting record. And it's like, oh, if you're not doing anything on your voting record, oh, you're not turning down his legislative agenda. And so much of this is reading between the lines. It's it's not what's happening. It's what's not happening that's most important to this type of dynamic. Congress is flexing an enormous amount of power right now. And it doesn't mean that it has to be out there and like, literally putting him on trial yet it just means that you're not doing the crap that he wants you to do right yeah i mean i agree i agree with both of you i think i think a lot of this has to do with the baseline that's being used i think for a lot of liberals klein included they're using their kind of normative evaluation of what should be happening in the united states right now and to them trump is obviously unfit to be in office and should be removed immediately and if that is your baseline that he should be out of here immediately of course whatever congress is doing is going to fall short of that but i think a more appropriate way to think about whether Congress is exerting uh, power is to compare it to what a typical Congress does. And a typical Congress, faced with a first-year elected president, uh, basically falls in line and does whatever he says and backs him up on everything. And if you look at how Congress has behaved in this first year, it's been anything but that. Well, I mean, uh, so, so digest that a little bit. I mean, uh, 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 Bernstein had a fantastic piece on this the other day where he talked about what the normal operating procedure would be when the president is facing some sort of, like, public outcry, like when the Mueller investigation stuff dropped the other day. Like, all of a sudden, White House would put out talking points, and then members of Congress would be lining up to get on television and start repeating those talking points right. and hitting those notes in front of national televised audiences. Right. It was dead silent on the Hill. I mean, yeah. like, eerily freakishly quiet even among democrats yeah. like after those after that stuff came down go back to 93 with bill clinton when this was going on the, even though the democrats had problems with clinton clinton was able to get a tax passage th package through he failed on health care he had his own kind of uh immigration ban if you think about uh 
of don't ask, don't tell, but yet he was still had enough power and he still got enough people to support him going through to get something done. This Congress is not supporting their president that way that that Congress did. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I thought that was the weakest part of, of Klein's piece yesterday was this idea that the comments made in the wake of the indictments against Manafort were somehow pro-Trump by the Republicans in Congress. I thought they were anything but that. Right. Um, you know, maybe coming to a mealy-mouthed middle position might seem like something that, again, against your normative view is weak, but against what would standardly happen in this situation where someone would just flatly defend the president and use his talking points, you didn't see any of that. In fact, you saw no senators come out and agree with the president that these indictments were you know, far afield and not part of the campaign. Instead, they all supported Mueller. So they want to see the investigation through to its end. I mean, think about that. And and the one time you did see Republican senators up talking about something was when you had John Cornyn up there and Warren Hatch and Chuck Grassley. And not only would John Cornyn not answer the question about the charges that have been brought or the guilty plea, uh, Chuck Grassley snuck out between two flags in a back door. I mean, it was the most <laughs> insane oh, thing I did. It was, it was incredible. I mean, like, he's lit- here's this, like, you know, 70-some-odd-year-old man, like, sneaking out between a couple flags, like, awkwardly opening a door and sneaking out the back, rather than answer questions about his own a president from his own party. I mean, I mean I, that's stunning. Yeah, it might have been his lunch date, too, that was problematic. I mean, there, there, there was right, yeah, more in the room that, that yeah, yeah. I mean, I think another thing that's going on here is I think I think there is something to the idea that a lot of members of Congress are scared of the Republican base and Trump supporters and, yeah. and being hurt by them electorally. But there's this odd notion that being neutral towards the president, if you're one of his co-partisans, is somehow a strong measure of support. When normally we think being neutral towards the president is a, an absolute abandonment of him in any in any kind of normal presidential situation. Right. And again, I, I I do think the Republicans are kind of trying to toe both lines here where they want to uh, get their policy agenda through. They don't want to turn the entire Congress into a circus of impeachment or otherwise attacking the president. But I think, you know, for a typical Republican who wants to see the Republican agenda enacted and doesn't particularly like Trump and doesn't think kind of the circus at the White House is a good thing, they're kind of making their way now. Um, The absence of presidential leadership has hurt them, but, you know, it's not like they're putting in Trump's agenda. We were just talking about kind of uh, appropriations figures numbers and how the original FY18 budget submitted by the White House was just a non-starter on the Hill. Yeah. Uh, Trump's influence on, on the legislative side has been you know, close to nothing right and, now. And more so than most. I mean, most presidents' budgets are dead on arrival when they come to the Hill. But this was one where the appropriators just took it and threw it over their shoulders and were like, okay, we got to work off of 2017. We can't even use this as a basis to begin the discussion. That's what was different this time. Yeah. And here's the thing, and this this kind of underlies one of the one of the bigger myths about congressional support for Trump and, and the Trump administration, is they're using roll call votes to back their position. Yeah. Oh, he he supports the administration on this many roll call votes. And Matt, you had a phenomenal uh, tweet storm about this on Twitter. It was just that that's not an indicative sample, yeah. right? That's not a good sample because you're not getting a diversity of opinion. You're getting a completely biased yeah. sample out there, because right? you don't vote on everything. You don't right. vote on the things that aren't going to pass, right? Yeah. And the things that aren't passing is a whole lot of stuff that the president would love to push through, right? right? But Congress is basically taking a step back, stalling it. He's got nominees to DOD being held up by uh, Mr. Uh, Chairman McCain at Senate Armed Services. Um, he's got all sorts of judges backed up right now. I mean, it's just, it's, it's uniform across 
possibly. Well, the things as, they're not doing is stunning. As a congressional apologist, like Mark, I, I I take offense to anyone who looks at a congressional roll call vote and says someone's voting with the president. Yeah. Uh, particularly with this president, because in the vast majority of these cases, it's the president is voting with the Republicans. If you look at the right. iterations of the health care bill, well, what did Trump support? He just supported whatever they put on the floor. Whatever and, pass. Right, and that doesn't it doesn't make you going along with the president. It means the president's going along with you. And it's it's just another thing, you know, these people who look at Trump as this kind of proto-autocrat or someone who's going to master Washington and take over. And I just laugh because from my vantage point, he just looks like he's trying to cling to the bumper of the Republican car yeah. as it drags him down the street. Right, the ACA repeal. Like, let's, re- let's repeal Obamacare. Like, he was not the first person to say that, right? I mean, there were tons. I mean, right. every single Republican on Capitol Hill said that starting since the thing passed, yeah. right? Even before the yeah, thing passed. Yeah, sure. I mean, so this is this is something that predates the president by a long time. Right. It's been a Republican mantra for a long time, and it's been their biggest campaign point. This is not presidential support. In sure. any you could definitely make an argument that whatever he's had to say about this has actually caused it to be less likely to be sure. passed. Yeah. Absolutely. He has caused problems all the way down the road. For the I mean, what, what is the Trump agenda that's distinct from the Republican agenda? It's something like the border wall, right. protectionist trade policies, infrastructure infrastructure package. Although that's okay. questionable. Questionable, but none of those three things have even come close to coming up on, on the floor of Congress yeah. yet. And then we have one counterexample. What's the Republican agenda that's not a Trump agenda? Well, limiting the president's sanction authority with Russia. It passed ah. almost unanimously. Yeah, that yeah. would work. Right. Yep. So. Mission accomplished. So that's the one thing that they did. Yeah. All right. Let's transition into the one thing that they got done this week, mm. um, which or last week, um, when they were actually able to pass a budget. Yes. So the FY18 budget, now that we're already a month into the, the year, we finally have a budget for how to try to put together an appropriations for this year, um, as well as dealing with reconciliation. So what, what actually finally happened? The House passed something, the Senate amended it, sent it back to the House. The House said, all right, all right, all right, we'll do what you say. But it was a very close vote, 216 to 212. There wasn't a lot. And you have to remember that the budget in and of itself isn't a law. There's no real authority here. It's a roadmap, a blueprint for how Congress is going to move forward on budgeting things, appropriations, and revenue. And the biggest thing they did in this is they put in some instructions called reconciliation instructions, instructions to other committees that said, hey guys, you go off and write changes to law, which will change the way that we raise revenue. And we're going to give you some clearance. We're going to let you decide to give back $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years in revenue to people. Um, So that was the biggest thing they did. Um, And then they decided to say, okay, for the actual this year's appropriations, we're going to set it at what the law says we can do. It's called the, the BCA cap level. Um, and so what's interesting about that is... BCA the, cap level, by the way, stands for Budget Control Act, which was put in place in 2011, and then it's also known as sequester that hit in 2013 or was triggered because they didn't find savings and stuff. Anyway, so that'll be referred to as BCA. So, so yeah, yeah, perfect. That, excellent. Yep. Um, and so the number for Department of Defense is $549 billion for one year, which is a fair amount of money, but it's not close to what the actual House Appropriations passage was, which was at 600 uh, and, I don't remember, it was 621 billion dollars. So we have a small problem here, that what we're allowing to go through is significantly less than what is already passed the House on appropriations. 
and the authorizers want to do even more. I think it's like $640 billion. Yeah. So the, uh, the fact that they're getting this stuff out there, at least putting a plan out, a plan that they already know that they can't follow, kind of makes you scratch your head. And then last but not least in this, and I'll let the guys comment, um, one of the things that they list in here is what the expectation for the debt is going to be over the next 10 years. So right now we're a little over $20 trillion in debt. By the end of 2018, they expect that to be a little over $21 trillion. Within the next 10 years, by the end of FY27, they expect the debt to be at $26 trillion. All this while at the same time saying these tax cuts are actually going to bring us in more revenue over time. So it kind of begs the question, which one do you believe? Are we going to actually bring in more revenue over time, or is the debt going to increase? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think this year is the kind of the final realization by by everyone surrounding Washington that the the congressional budget process has really broken down and devolved into the congressional unlock reconciliation process. Yep. Even the even the appropriations level side, now that the Budget Control Act is in place, it really is kind of just a mirage because you know there used to be kind of two things in any uh, budget resolution that mattered, and one were these appropriations levels. That could be said, and the second was any reconciliation instructions that could be used uh, to unlock a majoritarian process in the Senate. But now, with the Budget Control Act in place, everyone kind of accepts that we're going to have to go back and, by law, revise the caps on both defense spending and non-defense discretionary spending. That it really doesn't even matter what's in in, in the budget resolution. I, once upon a time, uh, senators who had written a budget resolution with the levels of spending that they wrote in this one might have been dinged for that. As well, you're going to cut all this spending that level, but no, no one dinged them for it because everyone kind of realizes it's just a fiction at this point, and it's going to have to be revised. Which really leaves the budget resolution as nothing more than a reconciliation vehicle, uh, especially when it comes this late in the process with the Budget Control Act. And so that's what I see as the big deal on this. And uh, you know, I think the the big point to take home from here and why the vote was so close in the House is that a lot of people in the House got screwed by this budget resolution or at least look like they're going to get rolled. Well, I think you saw that when the House was about to vote on this thing and they were asking uh, really well-known members like Tom Cole, for example, who's one of the more astute members of Congress, in my opinion. And they were asking him, like, well, what do you think about this budget? He's like, well, I don't like it very much, but I'm going to vote for it, right? And it's sort of like, well, that pretty much sums it up, right? Here's the thing that I hate, but nonetheless unlocks a filibuster-proof process for us to shove through something that's yet to be written, right? That sounds pretty fantastic. Um, so, I mean, it's total mirage now. And now that everything, the budgeting process has basically moved from April to now November and December because of... Uh, the Budget Control Act, we're, re we're rewriting all of the appropriations numbers in December and not February, and now it's just whether or not we want to do reconciliation, right? Yeah. This is why we haven't had budgets in the past few years, or the past three or four years, is because we haven't needed reconciliation for anything right. real, real right. important, right? And, and what's fascinating, I mean, we're in a timing bind right now. I mean, President Trump is saying he wants a tax bill on his desk by Thanksgiving? Let's unpack that for a little bit. There's absolutely no reason to rush this by Thanksgiving, right? There's none, right? Uh, there, why would you want to get it done faster rather than to get it actually just done, right? You can and do this right. in March or March or April or whenever it is. You can wait that many months. Why not go through an open process? This is sort of like pinging on, on, on the different type of stuff that we're, we're going to talk about later, but this, there's no reason to push it this far. But the reconciliation instructions say what? November... 27? November, no, not even. It was like November 13th, 13th. I think, is when 
the committees are supposed to report back to the budget committee what changes they want to put into place, with the idea being that they could then get it onto the floor and get it out of the House or the Senate before Thanksgiving, and they could start finalizing it by December. But they, they have another thing out there that's kind of important. Um, yeah, on December the 8th, yeah, we shut down the government again right. unless we actually do an omnibus in the appropriations. And nobody's talking about that. And that's something to be of some concern to, I know, many of our listeners who are government employees. I mean, think about this. We're talking about the fact that the defense numbers don't work, right? We're talking 549. We're talking 600. What the hell? There's this, this thing in between. They've got to pass a law, which means you have to have at least 60 votes in the Senate for this type of law. So you've got to pass a law to open up more spending. They're not even beginning to negotiate it. And oh my goodness, it's five weeks from now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. How do, yeah. How do you write an omnibus? How do you write a giant budget deal in two weeks? So I don't think there's any what, chance they write an omnibus. I mean, I no, no. I, I think this has to be a CR into the January, into January February. at least. Right. And, and so, and that's when it really starts to pinch the executive branch too, is when you push a CR, you know, past that first quarter and into the spring. And so I think they're in, in trouble there. One thing I want to go back to is um, on the actual budget deal between the House and Senate, what ultimately happened was the House more or less ate the Senate's budget. And the key difference between these two budgets was that the House originally wrote a budget uh, that was right. more or less revenue neutral, um, actually cut spending yeah. in its reconciliation. Saved by, $203 billion. Yeah, dollars. Like that, cutting mandatory spending on Medicaid? Was that yeah. and, and other stuff. And, other uh, stuff. and, and, <laughs> and presuming you know, some, some revenue. And the Senate budget uh, specifically looks to create tax cuts that don't, that, that aren't paid for, or at least aren't fully paid for, such that it can go $1.5 trillion uh, in decrease in, in, in total revenue. And, and so that, that's, a, that's a big loss for the House members who wanted to do a paid-for tax cut. Uh, I'm it, old enough to remember when the Republican Party was the party of fiscal discipline. Um, and when tax cuts didn't matter as much as balancing the budget. Now, you have to be pretty old for that. I mean, you have to go back to the 70s for that. And you are that. But yeah. I am that, so I can do that. <laughs> but, um, boy, the, the fiscal conservatives in the poor Republican caucus, especially in the House, they just got rolled. Yep. Um, and they're hoping that the payoff here is true and, and will come to pass, that this additional money in people's pockets. And, oh, by the way... We need to make sure those tax cuts aren't for the rich anymore, right? I mean, that was what was coming out this morning. We're doing away with the estate tax repeal, or at least we're going to slow it down. Well, a there, there's bit. a lot of stuff with the tax and, reform. And oh, process. we're going to do away with uh, tax cuts for the rich. It's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. But I, as a former staffer who worked on the appropriations, care more about the fact that put this tax stuff to the side until you at least fund government. Right. Um, and that's not what we're doing, and, and that's not good news. Well, and, and in fact, I've heard the exact opposite, that they're not going to start these negotiations or they're not going to uh, really kick them off. Yeah, on the on the the like, keeping the government open stuff until after they're done with tax reform. I, which actually, is, I, I just don't think it's possible. Nuts, right? Because yeah, I mean, like, like, tax reform is going to bleed way past the deadline. There's right. no way to get it done by December, I don't think. And then all of a sudden, you're looking at government shutdown. You have to negotiate things like who's got the leverage in that scenario? I mean, you've just handed even more leverage to Nancy and Chuck, who are more than happy to take it when they walk into that room. Yeah, the Democrats will have a lot more leverage again because you've got to pass a law to light to up. 
the caps. Right. Um, and that means you've got to have Democrats in the Senate to make that work. Right. Right. And not just that, but, you know, and Democrats in the House. Right. It, the, Paul Ryan has been unable to deliver Republican votes on anything close to a budget deal or an omnibus or a debt ceiling in how many years now? Yeah. Right. So no, they, they, they simply they don't have the votes in either chamber. Mitch and Paul are, are, are in bad spot when they walk into the room. Um, and the longer you put this off, the more leverage that you're handing over because it's more of an emergency situation, the more you've got to get it done. Um, I think Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi's gambit to push this into December was was really, really smart. Because this, it does exactly what you intended to do, which is to eat up the calendar to make it more difficult to pass this. And oh, by the way, guess what else expires in December third, December eighth, or whatever it is? The debt ceiling, right? So the Treasury is going into extraordinary measures. When are we going to have to deal with that again? Yep. Uh, Nancy and Chuck are very happy about ha- 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 helping out on that again too, right? So it's just over and over and over. We've got this situation where the budget is getting pushed in December, and the leverage is being shifted into the minority party, which yeah. is just ironic right. in, and the, in a way that's stunning. And the last thing I want do on this before we get to tax reform is I think Roy Blunt just said either yesterday or today that it looks like they're going to have to roll the next um, emergency supplemental into this too. So the additional money that they're going to need to help take care of Texas, or maybe it was Cornyn who said this, that they have to take care of Texas and the flooding um, is now also looks like it's going to be part of the omnibus. And as he said, this is not great because the more and more you add to try to that to that omnibus, the more and more likely you're not going to have the votes to get anything passed yeah. at all. So yeah. it's, a, it's a hard thing. But we got to talk a little bit more probably about tax reform. Yeah, I think we should talk about tax reform both on the politics of it and the process of it. Josh, yeah. you were, like Mark, you were on a mild rant today about... Yeah. about Tax reform process. Why don't you go ahead and kick this off? Well, the you know the process is that there is no process. <laughs> it's just it's being written behind closed doors somewhere, and then it's going to be dropped on the floor, and people are going to take it or leave it. Um, and so this is what's exactly exactly what happened during the AHCA, um, which was a a train wreck in almost every single manner, right? Um, I think what's happening now, I can't tell because, again, it's not public and we don't know what's actually happening behind closed doors. Uh, but it seems like uh, the Speaker is consulting with his members, at least, a little more this time before he releases the package. Um, when he released the, uh, what, what was the AHCA? It was the American Healthcare, Healthcare Act. Act. Right. No. The, the repeal of Obamacare. The repeal of, the, of Obamacare. Paul Ryan released this thing and everyone hated it, right? A- everyone. The right, the left, the middle, the, the business, the consumers. Everyone hated it. I mean, it it should have gotten a medal or something along those lines um, because it was such a hated thing, like a plaque, like most hated bill in congressional history or something. This time around, it seems, it seems, again, like from best my vantage point, uh, that he's consulting with the members a little bit more. So at least he's got a better idea of what the whip count is, which it was not the case during the AHCA. Although he did get that through the House, and they almost got that through after, the Senate. After amendments no, from Meadows and, and MacArthur and, and, consulta- and consultation with the president. Um, but one of the things that we're seeing is that you, you've got all these big stances that they originally started with that are being rolled back. And James Walner had a great piece, uh, a great little uh, tidbit on this that uh, Republicans have backtracked on so far on closing loopholes, lowering the top rate, and repealing the estate tax. And the bill hasn't even been released yet, right? Yeah. I mean, we don't, we literally don't know what this is, right? And right. so, what you have to imagine is going to happen: they're going to release this bill, they're going to go through another pro forma markup where the speaker just says, "Don't change the bill." They're going to get it out of ways and means. They're going to stick it on the floor, and they're going to send it to the Senate, where. 
things get really interesting, right? Um, the Senate, you have a filibuster-proof process, and then you have two senators who have already said they are not going to commit to deficit tax cuts, right? So Bob Corker and Rand Paul are like, nope, not doing that. And so we're stuck with this bill that they can lose no votes on in the Senate, right? I mean, that's you're, that's not a razor thin margin. That's no margin. There's there's nothing to lose. Uh, you can't you can't lose another single Republican in this particular instance. There are fifty Republicans who hold veto power right. over the legislation. That, exactly. I mean, that is the thing about these kind of closed door leadership driven processes, though, is that they don't create iterative Brian slowly and surely along the way. They create these all or nothing situations where you have these high stakes votes or high-stakes decisions about what to put on the floor or how to put on the floor, where you end up just begging individual senators here and there right. about what you're actually going to do. Right. And instead of having kind of a give and take of, you know, fits and starts and failures and restarts within the committee system, you end up with these dramatic scenes on TV where the president is trying to convince John McCain to change his mind and he puts his thumb down. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a little bit of sympathy for Republicans on this one. N- not much, but some in that... that if they want to do this, they need to do this. Yeah. Because they're not doing this next April. It's just not going to happen. We are quickly approaching 2018 silly season. 2018 silly season may start earlier. And they start next normal. Tuesday yeah. after the elections in Virginia yeah. and, yeah. and New Jersey. Right. Well, how will Barbara Comstock feel about tax reform if yeah. Gillespie loses 68 to 32 in her district, right? Um, yeah. We don't know. And so I have a little bit of sympathy for them derailing kind of regular order in order to move quickly here, but but not a whole lot of sympathy. I think this is this is a process set up to fail and a process set up to create all sorts of antagonisms within the party within it within a policy area that itself is incredibly complicated. Who knew it could be so right? Difficult? Exactly. We've we've already seen this with with the kind of state and local tax revolt from the New York and New Jersey. Republicans, uh, McCarthy or whoever managed to keep the California Republicans at bay. Surprisingly, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, those, right. those Republicans walked out of plank. Right, Steve Knight, Jeff, California. Jeff Denham. Are yep. they really going to be I able said. to vote for a package in the end that that doesn't exempt state and local taxes from federal taxation? Hurts their constituents yeah. so badly. I don't know, and, that, and that's just the beginning. I mean, we, as Josh said, we've already seen fights over the state and local taxes, over the four hundred one ks, over the top marginal rate on the individual side, over the corporate pass through policy and uh it's just gonna get worse and i you know the one thing i've been thinking about tax reform is that we've never had major tax reform in the age of the internet and information and i assume this bill is going to be released and three days later everyone's gonna be able to plug into a calculator what would this bill do to me and uh if there's a policy that becomes personal to people it's the taxation placed upon them that might be right might be wrong people you know probably you know certain some people should have to vote against kind of their own personal good for taxation policy but they ain't going to do it in a lot of cases and i'm i'm Interested to see how the public responds to an actual tax bill you can read uh, going forward. We've never really been in this moment. No, and I mean, the majority leader came out and basically admitted that taxes are going up for some people, right? Um, many of those people happen to be Republican constituents, right? Uh, and so what are you going to do when, when that's the case? Like, this is something that, you know, what, 10 years ago would have been totally, totally anathema to the entire party, and right? I, you would have been voted out, right? The, uh, 14 years ago, I'd say, to be exact, in 2003. Right. Um, right. So much for the tax pledge, right? right. I mean, that that's evidently not a thing anymore. So I'm going to put um, both of you on the spot right now. Okay, clearly the Republicans need some sort of policy next fall that they've passed that they can run on. Uh, given that, given the difficulties of tax policy, given the process, does a tax bill come out of the United States Congress that President Trump signs? No. No? I can't see it. Uh, I mean, I just don't see how they... I'm not even sure 
attacks policy gets to his desk. I mean, even with only a unique majority in the Senate, I just don't see how the how Susan Collins comes to the same conclusion as a majority of the people in the House. I don't see how they come together on a single bill. So I'll even go as far as to say is I don't think something even makes it to his desk. Yeah. Well, I I should say that's a. I mean, I I don't disagree. I think tax reform is doomed. I do think Trump will sign any single bill comes out of Congress. Literally, I don't. I do not think there is a legitimate veto threat in any capacity here. Right. Um, you could attach repeal to AUMFs. I think right. you would sign this. <laughs> I think that's right. I think he he do, he, he, he reauthorized military force. <laughs> he has along with this. Yeah, he, it, and he may even do it without a wall. Right. Um, but there's, I don't see how this this at all is ever going to be squared. You have this one segment of the of the uh, of the Republican conference for the House and the Senate that believes that tax cuts are going to increase revenue, right? Yeah. They're going to pay for themselves in some way, the supply siders, and then you have others who are like, no, I don't want deficits, right? right. And so it's how do you how do you square that peg? This is not just about individuals in the Senate. This is about in, in large broad sweeps like the ideological economic opinions of the Republican Party. Like what what are we doing here? Yeah, I keep hearing from you kind of the distance you have between Collins, you know, from one angle and, and in the House median Republican or, you know, maybe Corker or Paul. But isn't there the prospect here that some Republicans in the Senate could go for this? Or is that just at this point fanciful? Is there, are there 48 no votes for this coming from the Democrats, regardless of what policy is placed? Oh, I mean, are there some Democrats who go for Yes. I mean, might, might um, you be able to put together a 50-vote coalition by losing some Republicans but gaining some Democrats? Who would you, I mean, that, so, well, okay, so I think who are the likely suspects, right? Well, first of all, before we get to that. You'd have to have a president who had the power to scare them. Mm-hmm. And I think as, um, as we've seen laid out, um, or we'll see laid out in, in, in blogs soon, um, this president is not, or Matt, you actually had a tweet storm on this a couple days ago, right, where this president is not in a position of power. And I don't think that Donnelly or Manchin are quaking in their boots or hide camp um, with this guy. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, because Manchin lost by forty-two points in West Virginia, forty-two points. It was the largest margin. I mean, if, you mean that, sorry, that, that Trump, Trump won, won by 42. by forty-two points in Manchin State, right? That's mm-hmm. that's stunning, right? That's a that's a massive, massive, mass. That's the largest margin in presidential modern history, as far as, far as I'm aware of. Um, I think he he would be a little bit scared of that type of thing. I, I maybe you could cover with Manchin or Tester or uh, Heitkamp or something along those lines. Um, you're not getting Brown or McCaskill or uh, Stavenow or anything like that. Donnelly. Uh, or Donnelly. Well, you might get Donnelly. You might get Donnelly. Might get Donnelly. But those are, the, those are the four that you would basically assume are in, in the reddest of red states. But right? if you can get those, you've gotten 50, 51 Republicans. I mean, I, they're not going to be the ones that all of a sudden go together. You're not going to see three of those guys, or two of those people get together with 48 Republicans to make this happen. No. The de- the pressure from the Democrats. So they're never the pivotal vote, is what you're saying? I don't think they can. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I basically see the, the Democrats in a position where even the ones who might want to bargain on this have a lot of party incentives to not bargain at all and force mm-hmm. the Republicans to try and do this themselves. Now, of course, you know, no party has that good a grip over any of its senators. The Republicans know, but... <laughs> <clears throat> the incentives here don't don't really look to be for the Democrats to compromise on this issue. Um, it, it, I, my my guess is that they probably can hold forty eight no votes, especially given that the baseline action here is going to be against a bill that comes out of the House, which is is likely to be a bill that if it has fifty votes in the Senate, barely has fifty votes in the Senate, and probably does not. Right. Um, I mean, so. the, the major tax bills that's what they're like. I mean, ninety three was tough, 
93 was a one vote margin in the House and it was a 50-50 vote in the Senate. And uh, people went down to the floor not necessarily knowing how they were going to vote. And Al Gore broke that tie. And and that was a difficult vote. And the the Democrats paid a heavy price for that in 94 um, for that bill. Now, this is obviously the opposite direction. Um, But this is... This is hard stuff, and it takes a long time to get it right. And I think what we've said, and I think is very true, is they have not given themselves enough time to really make sure they get it right politically mm-hmm. with their folks. Right. Final question: Will the president be a factor in this tax push? I, it felt like in the ACA that he or the ACHA he was just along for the ride. Taxes is somewhat more in his comfort zone, his wheelhouse as a policy matter. Do you think this will become known as Trump's tax reform? Or is this something that, again, is going to look like a congressionally driven process that you're going to associate with McConnell and Ryan? In the so, end? so my favorite part is what he just did um, earlier today in his cabinet meeting, where he essentially said, ah, I'm going to leave Mnuchin and, and Cohn to do this. And uh, if they don't get it done, I'm going to blame them. I'm going to Asia for 10 days, right. so they're going to get it done. That tends to give you the point of view that maybe he doesn't want to be as big a player on, on this. Yeah. I mean, my, my sense is that Trump likes to hang back from this policy because he doesn't want to be associated with it if it fails. Yeah. He wants to be able to dump the blame on someone else. I think that is a naive view of the president's role in legislation because... You know, to the degree the president is not engaged, that's an ingredient in something failing a lot of the time. But it, it does seem to be his thing. Um, you know, not totally unlike Obama on the ACA, where he wanted it to be kind of at arm's length from him, where he had, you know, uh, principles he laid out, but he didn't want to write the bill at the White House. But, I mean, anyone thinks this bill is being written at the White House. It's just, it's just, <laughs> la- it's just laughable at this point. But I, I do think it... You know, this would be an issue where Trump might be more deployable yep. as, a, as a public stumper for, for the issue because he clearly knows this issue better than he knows health care. And he's clearly more comfortable talking about this issue than he is about health care. Right, and I think that's something that it's one of those things where, yes, uh, this is something that Republicans have wanted to do for a while. On the other hand, this is not the repeal of the ACA, right? This is not something they've campaigned on for seven years. This is not something that's been like their MO. Uh, this is something that came along because they suddenly, unexpectedly, had all three of the major legislative branches of government, right? Um, and then I think that that's a perfect example of where Trump could be deployed favorably, right? Yeah. Where it could get his stamp, where this could be his legacy issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and does he is he deployed in a way that would that would push that across the line? It would help if he had an ounce of political capital with his gang. Right. right. Right now it's not looking good. But okay. Well, thank you. That is all for this week on Congress Two Beers In. Not sure when our next episode is going to be, but we hope you join in. Uh, And we'll see you then. Thanks for listening.